It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It came in a stout little bottle, just an inch and a half high. The colourful label on the cough medicine promised it would be safe and effective. It was stronger and cheaper than morphine. It was the heroic version. Introduced in 1898 by Bayer and Co, heroin was sold as non-addictive. But two decades later, it was reported that 98% of all drug addicts in New York were reliant on heroin. Now America is two decades into another opioid epidemic, fueled by a painkiller, fentanyl, that's 50 times stronger than the heroin in Bayer's stout little bottle. It's one of the worst public health crises ever to hit America. And it's getting worse. I'm John Prado, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, can America solve the opioid crisis? More than 650,000 Americans have died of opioid overdoses since the start of the epidemic just over two decades ago. Fentanyl, easily available and dangerously powerful, killed 70,000 people in 2021 alone. Now, as the federal government estimates that more than 5 million people struggle with an opioid addiction, states are looking for new solutions, any solutions, to the crisis. What are they? And why isn't there more political pressure to find them? With me this week to discuss America's opioid epidemic and how to slow it down are Charlotte Howard in New York and Idris Kaloun in Washington. Charlotte, what's going on in New York? Well, there are many in New York who are pretty consumed by the SVB news, both the bank's collapse itself and then also the fallout and potential opportunities for different players. So that's been a really big story and I've enjoyed our coverage of it. And Idris, I imagine the same is true in D.C., right? Yeah, it's all SVB all day. Janet Yellen is currently testifying as we record this on Thursday to a Senate committee that uh, there is nothing to fear about further contagion in the banking crisis. Um, So she's trying her best to calm fears down, which are very much uh, present here. We have a special episode of Money Talks on SVB, which is really good. So do go listen to that. This week on Checks and Balance, we're going to be talking about the opioid epidemic. And this is going to be the first of two episodes. And this week, we're going to be focusing on the demand side of the crisis, whether it's possible to reduce demand, reduce drug use, either by locking people up or by getting more people off drugs or both. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll have a second episode looking at the supply side, the routes by which fentanyl mainly and also heroin get into the US and whether there's anything that can be done about that. 
this is a story that we've covered a lot in The Economist over the past 10, 15 years. And there's a sort of weary familiarity to it and a kind of awful inevitability to the way the death toll just ticks up. But what we thought we'd try and do in this episode is take a look at some of the solutions that are being offered in different parts of the country. But before we get there, I think it's useful to start with a description of where America is in the opioid epidemic, the 20-year-old epidemic now. And a very good person to do that is Keith Humphreys, who advised both the Bush and the Obama administrations on drug policy. He's now at Stanford University. I asked him how he's seen the epidemic change over the past two decades. One thing we learned from the U.S.-Canadian opioid crisis is no criminal organization can generate addiction as well as the healthcare system can. Um, the volume of drugs it can put out, the trust people have in them, their lack of awareness that what they're using might be addictive really dwarfs anything that illegal markets do. The second thing we've learned is that markets evolve and illicit and licit markets end up affecting each other quite a bit. So even though the people who originally distributed the pills, the opioid pills, were doctors, um, it was an easy transition for illicit markets to grow up feeding off that licit market. And that's sort of different than how we often think about markets because usually we think, well, an illegal market will be driven away by a licit market. But it was really remarkable in the opioid crisis case, the licit market spawned an illicit market. That's pretty unusual. I'm interested that you talk about it as a US and Canada opioid crisis. There's less focus, I think, in the American media on Canada. So could you tell us a little bit about the story of Canada and how that differs from the US? It's really useful to look at Canada in part to avoid simplistic explanations of the opioid crisis. So it's very common to hear Americans say, you know, if we had universal health care coverage, or we had less inequality, we wouldn't have an opioid crisis. But Canada has those things and still has one. And it's uh, charted, of course, very similar to ours, very uh, big increase in prescribing, uh, you know, more than tripled in a very short period, very hard hit groups, uh, indigenous people, as in uh, the US, hit particularly hard at the beginning, but all sectors of the population affected. And uh, again, the same phenomena of heroin resurging, there always was heroin, but it certainly uh, resurged back, and then followed by the fentanyl, very similar. As far as I understand, the most recent opioid overdose deaths in America provide some small cause for optimism. They're down a little bit. Do you think that that is just a fluctuation along a trend that will continue? Or, or can we read something more into that, do you think? I ask because, now, as I said, there is a, there's a weariness about the annual, looking at the annual death tolls. And I think a lot of people following this story feel a sense of kind of hopelessness and powerlessness. Yeah. I mean, just as despair is common in the life of people who are dealing with addiction, it's also common in people who work in policy around addiction. I mean, it is very discouraging, the number of deaths, the amount of suffering, and, and also to remember that, you know, for every person who overdoses, there you know, might be 100 people who are addicted. They don't overdose, but their lives are very difficult. So the problem is even worse than it looks when you look at overdose numbers. You're right that in the last six months or so, um, deaths have trended down a bit in the United States. I'm not convinced, though, that that is uh, more than a benefit of COVID waning. Uh, so during COVID, we had, uh, in most American cities, overdose deaths went up about a third, you know, very quickly, which is faster than they'd ever done. In Canada, they went up actually even more. And that was due to isolation, I think, loss, lack of structure, stress, bereavement, and so on. As we're coming out of COVID, that is, I think, reaping some returns to people's mental health, to their daily routines, to their accountability, to their ability to connect, for example, with 
treatment providers or social groupings or uh, self-help groups, whatever it is they do that helps them not use drugs. So we're, we're benefiting from that, but that is a one-off. The fundamentals of the epidemic still remain the same. So very discouragingly, um, the Stanford-Lancet Commission, which I uh, directed, we modeled over uh, a prediction of over a million deaths in this decade in the United States from overdose unless we make significant changes to policy. We haven't done anywhere near as much as we should on the epidemic. That's why it has persisted. It's not, though, a state of nature. You can, in fact, influence epidemics. We see that, with, for example, with HIV. Um, you can change court to the epidemic with good policy, but we haven't put enough effort into it. And so a million deaths over the 2020s, that would take the epidemic to what death toll in, in total if you add in everything from the 2010s and 2000s? So that's twice as many deaths as about as have occurred already. So um, we'd be looking at 1.5 million people. One way we help people get a sense of that is that the opioid crisis has claimed more American and Canadian lives than World War I and World War II combined. Idris, as Keith ended by saying that the death toll from opioids in America is already horrendous and unfortunately maybe getting worse. I mean, if you look at the chart tracking overdose deaths in America, there's a really sharp increase from about 2018 onwards. But it's not like politicians in America have ignored this, right? There is a lot of talk in American politics on both left and right about the opioid crisis and how to deal with it. The Trump administration had a task force on opioid addiction. The Biden administration has looked at this problem and no doubt has good people working on it. The Obama administration did too. And and yet we are why we are. Why do you think this problem seems so resistant to public policy? I think the basic problem is that we were so late to realizing the scale of epidemic that had been created. So, you know, in the late 1990s and the early 2000s, there was a huge influx in prescription drug prescribing from companies like Purdue, who produced OxyContin and other kinds of opioids, which just led to this creation of a mass of of people who were addicted. Then in the late 2000s, as people became aware that these products were driving addiction, OxyContin actually reformulated their pill to make it less easy to abuse, which actually worked. The problem was that it drove a lot of people to cheaper forms of opioids, which was heroin. And we transitioned from a prescription drug crisis to a heroin crisis. And then later in in the 2010s, we moved to a synthetic opioid crisis of fentanyl and carfentanil, which are cheaper to produce and easier to smuggle across the border, which is where it generally comes from. And I think that public policy only realized and started to respond to this issue around the start of the fentanyl epidemic. And at that point, you had millions of Americans who were addicted the policy response, despite the money that's been allocated, has had some teething problems in scaling up. And that means that for all the attention that's been paid to this issue lately, it hasn't done a very good job of reducing the surge of deaths, which is related to not just one epidemic, but you know three that are crashing into each other. And then the other thing just to bear in mind is, again, to underline how much more powerful fentanyl is than even heroin. I mean, up to 50 times stronger and that it can come in all different forms. And if you look at this third wave, as Idris described, it's just an astonishing level of death from this particular phase. And so policy is always going to be lagging a bit. But 
what you might call innovation among people in the drug market, um, really dangerous innovation to maximize profits, has just moved really quickly and policymakers haven't been able to act nimbly enough. One other point that Keith Humphreys made to me, in addition to the lethality of fentanyl, is that it's just more addictive as well. So it's even harder to get off fentanyl than it is to get off heroin, which is a notoriously difficult drug to kick. And it's so addictive that in the only other country outside the US and Canada that's had an opioid epidemic with fentanyl at its heart, Estonia, the only thing that seemed to work to end that epidemic was that such a very large number of people died of overdoses that the drug became incredibly notorious. That's not happened in America, even though the overdose rate in America is actually even higher than it was at its peak in Estonia. And in America, this phase of the epidemic has spread way beyond the earlier populations, either of prescription opioid users or or of heroin users. Yeah, that's right. You see fentanyl largely replacing heroin, but also being used in party drugs, in the sort of pills that are distributed and, and sometimes abused among teenagers. Traditionally, drug overdose deaths, if you look at the death certificates, there's often one substance found, and the increasing trend is to find multiple substances, stimulants and depressants like opioids. You know, the problem with fentanyl is that it's so potent that a very small dosage can become lethal. There was a recently a rash of, of people in New York who died while using cocaine from a delivery service that had been adulterated with fentanyl, and you know, several people died. And you see that happen a lot more, which is a sign of just how, how potent these new drugs are. That kind of brings us to an interesting phase in the crisis, though, right? Because it's so acute. The geography of it is that the use of fentanyl and fentanyl overdose deaths has continued to spread west from what used to be concentrated mainly in Appalachia and in the Northeast to many Western states. And then you see different state experiments in thinking about new ways to deal with addiction. So I think both the problem has not gone away and you see policymakers trying to be a bit more inventive with mixed success, right, in thinking about how to tackle it. And one of the states that has been trying out some new public policies, which we will examine in the rest of the podcast, is Oregon. But first, before we get there, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you would take out a subscription to The Economist if you don't have one already. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash US pod. Idris, Charlotte, what do you think has been particularly good that our colleagues have written over the past few days? Idris, this is your traditional opportunity to talk about Alice's work. Well, this week we have put on the cover the Silicon Valley bank failure and uh, what to make of the crisis, which I'm sure is an excellent cover package, which has been written by my wife, Alice, uh, which I have yet to read. But I will get back to you on that. You better read it by the time this podcast is published. I will say just quickly in my defense that I I know what the piece says by osmosis, which is something of a defense. How about you, Charlotte? I continue to really enjoy our coverage of of not just Ukraine, but Russia and, and the way that global alliances are shifting. So we had a piece that ran that charted the countries that have decided to remain cozy with Russia over the course of this war which I found fascinating in thinking about each leader's calculus as they consider their own geopolitical alignments is fascinating. So I'd recommend readers turn to that. Also on the Ukraine and Russia coverage, our new podcast next year in Moscow is just outstanding. There's a new episode of that, which will be published on Saturday, which I've had a sneak preview of, which is very, very good. So that's also excellent. Do go and listen to it if you haven't already. Economist.com slash US pod is the link to take out a subscription to The Economist. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. 
Oregon is among the state's worst afflicted by the opioid crisis. So it's tried something new, decriminalizing the possession of drugs. The hope was that this would help deal with addiction as a public health problem rather than as a crime one, and that the state could find a way to get people off drugs before they died of overdoses. Our colleague Stevie Hertz visited Oregon to see the reality of how that's working out, two years on from decriminalization. You know, we just drove around downtown, and what's interesting is that there's still a lot of people visibly using what I assume is fentanyl because they're smoking it off of foil and drug deals going down, just driving around. Tony Vesner runs a drug recovery program in Oregon called Fourth Dimension. He's also chair for the state's Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission. We drove around Portland's Old Town in his giant SUV, which was scattered with his kids' random detritus. He's been sober for over a decade now. So it's you know, pretty permissive down here as far as drug use goes. People are openly using, which is very different than when I was using in Homeless, where you could not pitch a tent and you could not be just you know, using out in the open. Oregon has struggled with addiction problems for a long time. Federal data ranked it first in the nation for the use of illegal drugs. And for Vesna, in some ways, it feels like it's getting worse. Oregon has so many drugs. Like, okay, so let me give you some examples. When, when I was using, you know, like 10, 15 years ago or whatever, to get enough heroin to get, like, high or whatever, it was like 20 bucks. But now you can buy, like, a pill of fentanyl for, like, $2. But getting help for addiction has always been a challenge here. That same federal data put Oregon last in the country for getting treatment to people who need it. So the state is trying something new, decriminalizing the possession of drugs. It's the first and so far only state to do this. And it's something advocates have been pushing for for years. You know, as a general matter, when society says this thing is against the law, it's a moral judgment of the community that this thing is bad. People who do it are bad people. Mike Schmidt is the district attorney in Multnomah County, which includes Portland. He helped campaign for decriminalizing possession when it was put before voters as a ballot measure in November 2020. And when you make addiction criminal and make it bad and pass the community's moral judgment, we are doing the very thing that drives addiction. We are cutting people off from community. Before decriminalization, no one got lengthy sentences for possession, but charges could set people back as they tried to get into work or housing. And those consequences didn't fall equally. Black people in Oregon were two and a half times more likely to be convicted of a possession felony than their white counterparts. What we were doing didn't work. People who were convicted of possessing an illegal substance, their recidivism rate was the highest out of every other type of crime in our state. It was over 70%. So if the idea was that criminal prosecution was going to be the thing that got somebody the help they need or, you know, the incentive to change their lives. It was a miserable failure. Oregonians agreed. 58% voted for Measure 110, 
which also included increased funding for recovery services, paid for by taxes for marijuana sales. Just three months later, possession was decriminalized. Now, if someone gets caught with small amounts of methamphetamine, LSD, heroin, or fentanyl, the police issue them a ticket, or citation, similar to the kind you get for speeding. It comes with a maximum $100 fine, which gets waived if they call a hotline and get a health screening. Two years on, working out the impact is difficult. It's hard to know if consumption has increased. We do know that far fewer people are being arrested for drug possession, from well over 1,000 people a month to under 200 now. But overdoses have increased too. That was true nationally, but the growth was particularly bad in Oregon. The death rate due to opioid overdoses almost doubled in Oregon between 2019 and 2021. That outpaced the national increase of 50%. Two years out, we have to start looking at it and just recognizing that it's an unmitigated disaster and we need to fix it. Paige Clarkson has the same job as Mike Schmidt, 50 miles down the road. She's the DA in Salem, Oregon's capital. She points to the role that the criminal justice system had in treatment. While some people might realize and recognize that they have a problem on their own and might find their way into a treatment center, for a lot of people, the criminal justice system intersection is what actually is their rock bottom. And a lot of times by that point, they can't get the help themselves. They need some sort of carrot or a stick uh, to actually get them into treatment. Nationally, only a tiny fraction of jails provide a high standard of treatment for addiction. But some interaction with the police and the courts can do something. According to federal data from 2019, nationally, about a quarter of Americans referred to addiction treatment were sent by the criminal justice system. That's compared to about two-fifths being referred by themselves or a family member. We have created programs that use the public safety system as a bridge to that kind of help. And it's not the only way to solve addiction. It's not the best way to solve addiction. But the law enforcement community, the public safety system, we are a tool to manage the crisis and to manage addiction in our communities. And ballot measure 110 completely negated that tool. Some people who work in drug treatment feel similarly. That addicts often don't stop using on their own and prison can work as a timeout. It did eventually for Tony Vesna. When people become addicted, they really cause a lot of damage to themselves and others. Like, I did a ton of damage to people around me, and, and I, had to, I had to get into recovery and repair those relationships. Like, I don't think I should have went to prison for drug use, like, forever, but it was nice for me to have an intervention and a timeout and an opportunity to go to treatment over and over again because it took me five times. Measure 110 does have a structure for getting people into treatment. The tickets, where calling a hotline gets your fine waived. But that system isn't working. For one, the police are giving citations to far fewer people than they were arresting. 4,000 citations have been handed out since decriminalization. Less than 200 called the hotline. And less than 40 requested help. That has worked out to $7,000 per call. I think amongst my constituents, which are the people of Portland, I see an enormous amount of disappointment and frustration with Measure 110. Certainly the outcomes we see on the streets are not what people expected when they voted to decriminalize drugs. Our drug problem, which we thought would get better, perhaps unsurprisingly, got much, much worse. Mingus Maps is a member of Portland City Council. 
he supported Measure 110, and now he's pushing for change. Even the advocates for it say, you know, it's not working the way it's supposed to be working, but give it time and we will figure it out. And you just have to look out on the sidewalks and go, we really don't have more time. The folks who are out there right now, literally zombies, are they going to make it through the winter or another year in the grips of this addiction? Or will the system actually provide them with the treatment they need? Um, I don't have a lot of confidence about that. So I do think that change and reevaluation and reform is needed. A lot of this comes down to timing and execution. Because although possession was decriminalised quickly, bureaucratic hurdles meant that it took almost two years for much of the money needed for more recovery services to follow. That old system was scrapped before the new one was built. Now that the new one is being built, everyone hopes that things will improve as quickly as possible. Charlotte, it was interesting to hear Tony Vesner there talk about prison providing a timeout and helping him to beat his addiction. But it's not like treating this as purely a criminal justice problem has worked very well over the past 10 or 15 years either. Yeah, I mean, if you look back at the history of the war on drugs, there's been a huge shift to what's broadly consensus that just criminalizing drug use is a horrible idea. And different people have views about whether that shift is tinged because there are more white users of drugs and and some of the criminalization before was thought to target black users of crack cocaine, for instance, in the 1990s. But if you think broadly, it's not just on the state level, right? It's on the federal level that there has been more attention to thinking about needle exchange programs and measures to prevent the overprescription of opioids and the Department of Justice giving grants to different state and local actors to shift people from the criminal justice system towards treatment. So there is this this broad shift underway, which I think broadly we would applaud. But you hear in the package that Stevie produced and that really fascinating reporting from Oregon that it's much easier said than done, that there's a real problem as these things are rolled out if you don't pay attention to detail. So criminalizing the problem doesn't work. But as far as we can tell from Oregon, the experience there in the past two years, Idris, decriminalization is no magic bullet either, right? No, that's right. And I think people in America don't often think about the rest of the world. But when they do think about the rest of the world, when it comes to drug policy, the example that people often reach for is Portugal. So the canned history that people have in mind there is that Portugal had a drug problem, they decriminalized, and then they solved it. That isn't really what happened. Portugal did lessen the punishments for drug possession, but they didn't embrace a sort of permissive attitude towards drug addiction. If you were addicted, you were still referred to the system and you were referred to get help. Sometimes there was good case management in addition to to harm reduction. And I think what we've seen in, in Oregon is something closer to basically a lessening of, of penalties without much attention to scaling up the infrastructure that you actually need to get people into treatment, right? That's the distinction. So The Economist historically has taken the decriminalization side of the argument, I think on good grounds, right, that actually a problem like opioid addiction is not best treated in the criminal justice system and filling prisons full of people who are addicted to drugs is not a very good way to run your your justice system. But I think it's pretty clear from Oregon that decriminalization alone is not enough, right? It needs to go along with drug rehabilitation services and those need 
to be mandatory, really, for drug users. So actually, you know, neither people who would say that this is a problem that you can police your way out of, nor the people who would say, well, allow a more libertarian approach to this problem and it will fix itself, are, are correct. I think one of the interesting things that's become evident is when you try to copy another country's model, or even when you try to expand a model that seemed to work pretty well in the past, it needs to be so iterative and localized as the pandemic itself evolves. So if you think about needle exchanges, you know, needle exchanges were created in the 1990s when a real concern was trying to minimize the risk of death from HIV. And now when you look at needle exchange programs, the risk of death from HIV has declined a lot because treatment has improved. And meanwhile, the, the risk of taking drugs has gone up because of the deadly nature of fentanyl. And so there was some really interesting research that has been published recently actually questioning whether needle exchange programs are safe, whether the benefits outweigh their risks because of the extreme deadly nature of fentanyl. So I think that just underlines that whether you're taking a model from Portugal or thinking about what used to be sort of commonly accepted as a good idea in helping to minimize the risks among drug users, you just have to reevaluate everything again and again because the circumstances on the ground are changing so quickly. Yeah, that's right. And the other point, I think, is that when people look to Portugal or Switzerland, Switzerland had a, a heroin problem, which it solved by something called heroin-assisted therapy, which was basically the state providing heroin to people who were addicted in a safer environment in case they overdosed. That might have worked for Switzerland. I don't think it'll work for America, not least because, you know, that'll certainly rub a lot of uh, social conservatives, I, I think even social liberals, the wrong way. But the scale of the problem was very, very different as well. In America, the exponentiating trend just means that there are so many people who need help that scale is the problem. And that's one of the reasons why I'm skeptical that safe injection sites, which are areas where people can go and use drugs under supervision, are the real answer here. Uh, some people think that that is you know, the, the solution. They look to Europe. But again, Europe hasn't confronted an epidemic on this scale. And by contrast, widely distributing naloxone, which reverses overdoses, might be a, a better strategy, certainly scalable. Uh, although al already you can see that uh, despite a lot of attention to naloxone, we still see the death rate continue to go up in part because fentanyl is so deadly. So for all, for all of those reasons, I think that some people can mislearn the lessons from, from European countries that didn't just decriminalize. They also brought in a more intensive public health model than we're seeing in Oregon. And Oregon hasn't done a very good job of trying to import that. So as Stevie's reporting showed that a lot of public health officials and politicians in Oregon have now internalized the idea that decriminalization alone doesn't work great. But the state is also trying to work out how to get more people into drug treatment and, and reduce demand for opioids that way. So we'll be back in a moment to look at how that's going. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
one of the solutions to the opioid crisis is going to be scaling up treatment to get people off opioids. As well as looking at how decriminalization is going, when Stevie was in Oregon, she talked to people who were trying to do just that. So this is our addictions program. Any client that comes in... Danielle Deer helps run behavioral health at the Quest Center. She showed me around their new building in East Portland, and it was still hectic as the builders did the finishing touches. It'll provide a range of treatment services for mental health issues, HIV, and addiction, among other things. Measure 110, the ballot initiative that decriminalized much drug possession, has helped pay for it. We have four counselor's offices over here, and then this is our lab. Quest helps about 200 people a year in their addiction services program and aims to see another 50 on top of that this year. They provide therapy and peer mentors, people who've also had addiction issues but are now in recovery, to help people navigate treatment and sober life. The hope is that these mentors, rather than the criminal justice system, will help addicts get into and stick with recovery. Those positions are funded through Measure 110, and they're to help people in mental health navigate to recovery services. So we were able to Alongside decriminalizing possession, Measure 110 brought a big increase in addiction funding, about $300 million every two years. It's taken a while to get out, but now the money is headed to services like those at Quest peer mentors and housing, as well as needle exchanges and other programs aimed at reducing the harm of drug use. Oregon has a big shortage of services to help people with addiction. A recent study found that it has about half of what it needs. So that $300 million is a lot of money, but it won't come close to closing that gap. And there are services that won't see any of it. So we are the largest detox site in Oregon, and maybe one of the largest in the Northwest, and we have about 55 beds. Mike Weiner is an addiction doctor, and he helps to manage the Hooper Detox in East Portland. In the last year, we took 2,500 patients, which is huge. But on that same note, I think it's also important to note that we had to turn about 2,500 away because of the lack of accessibility and availability of beds. Patients normally stay at Hooper for between three and five days. After that, there can be another bottleneck, trying to get into longer-term residential treatment. About 80% of the patients at Hooper Detox are homeless. And across Portland, the wait for inpatient treatment can be up to three months. The money from Measure 110 isn't funding these kinds of treatments, because Medicaid, a health insurance program for the poor, can help pay for them. But that funding often isn't enough, leaving clinics with a shortfall, unable to cover their costs and meet demand. Right now, researchers reckon Oregon needs 30% more detox beds and 60% more inpatient treatment beds. I've been a physician here in this underserved state for my whole entire career. And I don't know if I can even imagine what it looks like if these services are more adequately funded. Amanda Rissa is an addiction doctor who also helps run Hooper Detox. She says there are regulations that are holding them back too. Medications for opioid addiction can help avoid withdrawal symptoms and prevent cravings. Studies find that these medicines, like methadone and buprenorphine, can help reduce the risk of a fatal overdose by 80%. These drugs really work. But methadone is still an opioid that can be abused, and it does have a street value. Too much can cause an overdose. So how it's stored and distributed is tightly controlled, 
even in a medical setting, which Rissa finds frustrating. We have a mosaic of regulations that prevent us from providing people with methadone here. All of these things are really hard, even though we have the clinical knowledge, the science, the safety. You know, we know what we would do and how we would do it. We just can't get the medications on site. And then another challenge is staffing. We have a shortage of personnel. So even if we built buildings and systems for folks to integrate into, it would be difficult to staff those systems. We're an organization with a fair amount of resources. We've got really active HR and recruitment teams. We've got a lot of incentives. And even then, we have a lot of vacancies. In Oregon, the addiction workforce is a third of what it needs to be, according to a recent study. Much of this comes back to funding. Addiction treatment just doesn't pay well. And so, stepping back, Oregon's attempts show that a lot of the needed solutions, dramatically increasing Medicaid funding, making methadone easier to access, even increasing the number of trained workers, that'll all require action on a federal level. Idris, it's easy to slip into fatalism when talking about opioids in America because neither what state governments have tried nor what the federal government has tried seems to have worked very well. And yet it's not the case, actually, that the government is hopeless at dealing with epidemics. I mean, the the AIDS epidemic saw a fairly successful public policy response in the U.S. Yeah, I think it was one of the biggest epidemics that the medical community had to reckon with. But what's interesting to me when I think about the contrast between the two is... In the 1990s, you know, Congress passed the Ryan White Act, which greatly expanded the funding to get people onto treatment. And there was pharmaceutical development. We have something called PrEP now, which is a prophylactic treatment that you can take if you think you're at risk of getting AIDS, which is kind of miraculous. Now, opioids doesn't have miracle drugs like that, but they do have drugs that do work a lot. We have medically assisted treatment in the form of methadone and buprenorphine. But the problem is that so many people who are addicted to opioids don't get access to them. So the expansion, I think we've seen an example there of of how it can go wrong, where you can allocate a lot of money, but if you're not able to get people to actually use the treatment, then the gold standard that we have is just is just being wasted. And I think the the contrast is is pretty striking. Yeah, I guess just to cast that in high relief, there is more money coming. So there have been these huge settlements that we've seen between states, twenty six billion dollar settlement that came from lots of cities and counties and states that sued Johnson & Johnson, McKesson, Cardinal Health, Amerisource Bergen. It's not just Purdue Pharma, right? And so the question now is how states and localities are going to spend this. And the model from the tobacco settlements that came that had even more money, $246 billion over 25 years, very little of that was actually used for smoking prevention or dealing with various issues related to smoking. It was used just generally for budget problems. People were building roads with it and helping to fund schools, et cetera. And so now there are better protections in place so that more of the settlement money will go towards treatment. There's money available now, and there's also been an important legal change in America, which I think has gone under the radar a little bit. Stevie, in fact, wrote a piece for us in The Economist about this recently, which is that crammed into the omnibus spending bill at the end of 2022, you know, remember the one that Congress rushed through and lots of people 
complained, you know, rightly in many cases, nobody had read. And there were all sorts of things smuggled in there that the voters didn't know about. There was a waiver snuck in there that made it a lot easier for doctors to prescribe some of these drugs that helped to get people off opioids. Historically, there's been a lot of care around prescribing them. But I think this is an area where the regulations were so tight and the problem of you know, illegal opioid use is so great that there was a real mismatch there. So there has been this important legal change. So hopefully allied with money, we'll begin to see a difference as some states start experimenting with what they can do there. Yeah, it used to be much easier as a doctor to prescribe OxyContin than it was to subscribe buprenorphine, which is the drug that is used to treat opioid addiction and unlike methadone isn't diverted for uh, misuse so it, it was it was a really counterproductive system add to that that there are still restrictions in a lot of states on the ability of methadone clinics to function or grow including in states like West Virginia that really do need it and you see that um, by the money that's flowing uh, in some ways states and, and the federal government is is still tying one hand behind its back the other way that states hinder themselves in treating this epidemic is by refusing to expand Medicaid, which was uh, something that a lot of states who didn't like Obamacare chose to do. Um, studies have found that in, in other states where you observe what happens after a state decides to expand Medicaid to more people, we see that the number of patients who are accessing medically assisted treatment, the methadone, buprenorphine, and other drugs that help treat opioid addiction, the number just jumps by 50%. So it's a huge way to get more people and and get critical funding. But a lot of states are still reluctant to expand Medicaid. You saw this was a potent campaign issue even back in 2016 or 2020. The idea that Trump understood the opioid crisis was part of what endeared him to many voters and made him seem like someone who, who really comprehended the scale of challenges in different parts of the American heartland. And now as this problem has continued to spread west as you have more states that are involved. I wonder if it becomes an even bigger issue in the presidential election to come. And I think that would be a good thing that you have policymakers on both sides of the aisle looking to win over what is a crucial block of voters, all these people who know someone in their community or have a family member who've been affected by this, and that that might be something that catalyzes change. Yes, well, that's a good optimistic note to end on. And as I mentioned Earlier, we will have a second episode looking at the supply uh, of opioids in America, how fentanyl, how heroin get into the country, and what, if anything, the federal government, state and local governments can do about that. Before I let you guys go this week, I have a quiz for you. One of the biggest stories in America over the past week, of course, has been the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, which we talked about earlier. And there have been wobbles at some other banks, including Credit Suisse, which has seen its share price go down. Question one. The first major banking crisis in the US was in 1819, and it was largely caused by the end of which overseas conflict? Um, what was going on then? The Napoleonic Wars? You got it. It was indeed the Napoleonic Wars. While they were raging, Britain and France had been reliant on America for many products. But when the conflict ended, Britain and France imported less and less and produced more themselves, leading to the so-called Panic of 1819. One point to address. Question two. The panic was also caused by America being heavily in debt following the war of 1812 and repayments due on which land deal? Uh, probably the Louisiana Purchase. Yeah, it was the Louisiana Purchase. It was the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. 
a point for each of you. Thomas Jefferson, who was the force behind the deal, was also caught up in the Panic of 1819. And it was part of the reason why he was heavily in debt when he died in 1826. Some very good knowledge of the early 19th century from you guys. I have to say, I don't think I deserve a point for that. I knew the answer. I was too slow, and Idris got there first. And in a future quiz, when I provide the correct answer faster than Idris, I do not want him awarded a point for <laughs> giving his answer second. So fair is fair. Okay, in which case it's an Idris clean sweep. But you did know the answer, so I feel like you deserve something. John, can I ask you a question? Do you know how much the Louisiana Purchase went for? Oh, I did know this and I've forgotten. It's ludicrously cheap. Yeah. I don't know either. I'm just asking you. I think it was $25 million, but uh, we can look it up. Louisiana. Louisiana Perch was $15 million bucks. Do either of you know how much Alaska was sold for? A million dollars. Was it like 50? It was about $7 million. $7 million. Wow. And it was much later, too. Alaska yeah. was an absolute bargain, it turns out. Indeed. Wow. Um, I see what you've done here, turning the tables in the quiz. Do you want to get in some more Alaska facts before we go? <laughs> um, the Biden administration this week approved the Willow Project in Alaska, which was the subject of my essay last year and two-part Checks and Balance podcast series. So if you missed it and want to understand why a Democratic administration is approving an $8 billion oil project in the American Arctic, you can go back and listen. The essay was great. The podcast is very good and also involves Charlotte um, camping in the world surrounded by lethal large mammals um, to bring Alaska to checks and balance listeners. So do go find it if you haven't heard it already. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Stevie Hertz and Harriet Noble. Nico Rofas mixed and engineered the episode. If you like the podcast, then please do let people know and leave us a rating and a review. That makes it easier for people to find the podcast and we get more listeners that way. You can now explore our whole archive, should you wish to do so, including last week's special episode on a murder at Lake Mead at economist.com slash checkspod. And you can get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe and stay sane. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.